Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. Recently, while I was sitting at a baseball game in Cincinnati with my friend Nick, we were discussing the the check-in function of the MLB ballpark app. Now, Nick had bought my tickets and used his phone to get us into the game. He didn't transfer the ticket to me. I kind of wanted proof that I'd been to a new stadium, and I had seen on the ballpark app as I was getting tickets for myself for later in the week that there was a way to check in on the app without having a ticket. Now, Nick thought this was a great idea, and he told me that he thinks that's a great idea because he is pretty sure he's had more people tell him they were at Wrigley Field for the Kerry Wood 20 strikeout game than the number of people that Wrigley Field holds. Now, Nick, just so you know in advance, is the most cynical friend I have. And so I quickly decided I'd have a little bit of fun with him, and I was going to tell him at a game I was at. I, I said I was at the game in Cleveland where uh, Corey Kluber had 18 strikeouts. Josh and I just happened to be in town for that game a few years back. And of course, as I said, Nick is cynical. He said, sure you are. So, a few days later, I was at that marathon game. I'm sure not all of you stayed up for it, but the game between the Guardians and the Twins a few weeks back, that went 15 innings. The next morning, before I headed to church, I sent him a screenshot of my tickets and said, I was at that game. We all want to be at something memorable, don't we? We all want to be at something exciting. We want to be there when something amazing happens. Nobody plops down a few hundred dollars for their family to go to a sporting event, hoping it'll be a stinker of a game, do they? But that's what happens more often than not. I know a lot of you say, whenever I go to the game, it's not exciting. Well, I've been to quite a few professional baseball games, and my only stories are the 18 strikeout game I talked about and that marathon game a few weeks ago. I've been to four NFL games, and I have zero stories to tell. I've been to three or four NBA games, and while I can say I've seen both Michael Jordan and LeBron James very early on in their careers, the only stories I tell are my cousin Prentice and Judy, their Aunt Bertha just about died going up the stairs to the old Chicago Stadium to the third deck. That's how far away our tickets were. And my Cavaliers story is I took Anna to a game when she was probably about eight, I bought her a jersey, but what she remembers is the pickle in a bag I bought her at the Speedway gas station on the way home. (laughs) Pretty boring stuff. That's not what we hope for in life. We we want the exciting stuff, but, but our days tend to be filled more with the mundane than with the spectacular, don't they? As we've been journeying through the life and, and the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We have seen events that were outstanding. You'd plop down a lot of dough for a ticket to see Jesus allowing the demons to go into the the herd of pigs. Uh, You might even spring for front row for that one. That was a good one. Uh, You'd be happy to get tickets for a front row seat for the feeding of the 5,000 because you know it comes with a voucher for your family to get a free meal, right? Um, Unfortunately, There wasn't a Ministry of Jesus app that the disciples could check in on to say they were there. They couldn't verify that they were there for the Sermon on the Plain. They couldn't verify through some sort of technological means 
that they were in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. But we have something better. We have Holy Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit letting us know that the disciples were there. And of all the events that the disciples would have witnessed and would have loved to checked in at and tell their friends they were there, there's probably none greater than the Transfiguration. Not only was it a rather exclusive group that were present that night, but it was the only event where Jesus, who seemed rather ordinary, rather mundane, walking around in our flesh, on that night, his glory was revealed. Now, this is a kind of tough passage. We we struggle to even begin to imagine what this passage must have looked like, and, and that's without even trying to consider what the passage means and what the ramifications are of this event, the transfiguration. So it's probably a good thing that we're going to do what we normally do, break the passage down into three parts, and hopefully this can help us get a grasp on the text today. So the first thing we're going to look at is that we're going to see that Jesus is praying and he's visited by Moses and Elijah. And there's more to this than just Jesus being visited by some of the best-known people from the Old Testament. There's a reason these two guys are the ones who are there. There's a reason it's Moses and Elijah visiting Jesus on the mountain. Secondly, the disciples who are with Jesus wake up, and they desire to prolong the experience. Imagine waking up and suddenly seeing Jesus looking different. You would want to be in the presence of this as long as possible. But we find here in the text that this this isn't the plan. And finally, God speaks God confirms what we already know to be true. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the chosen one. The voice from the cloud also gives instructions to the disciples. Listen to Jesus. Now, we've seen this idea throughout the Gospel of Luke in the way that the authority of Jesus has been expressed to us, but now here it is clearly said from the voice of God, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. Listen to him. And so as we move from what we looked at last week when Jesus told his disciples to take up their cross daily, and we also saw that Peter had confessed Jesus to be the Christ, and then Jesus told them that he was going to suffer and rise again, and then he let them know that the life of one of his disciples will lead to being persecuted as well, we move on to this. Interesting transition, right? Peter Peter confesses him at the Christ. He says he's correct. He says he's going to suffer. He says his disciples are going to recover. And then now the next thing Luke tells us is about this glory of Jesus being revealed. So we come to verse 28. And Luke wants us to make sure that we feel the passage of time here again. I've been drawing this out in the text a little bit. The story of Jesus is continuing to to move forward. And we know where where this story is going to end up. You and I know the rest of the story. We've been through a few Good Fridays, Easter's, and Ascension Days, right? We, We know the story. And we know we're getting closer and closer. Time is marching on to the crucifixion. And so we see that Jesus once again goes to pray. He gets away, and he communes with the Father. But this time, something different happens. Something new takes place. And there won't be anything like this again. This is a very unique thing. Again, this is the event you want to be at. We are told that while he's praying, something amazing happens. The appearance of his face is altered, and his clothing becomes dazzling white. And now, as I brought out earlier, we, we struggle to even begin to understand 
what this would look like. How do you even begin to imagine the glory of God being manifested in Jesus here? Well, now, Luke tells us that his face was altered. Now, that doesn't necessarily sound like a good thing either. His face was altered. Well, Thankfully, the Gospel of Matthew gives us a little bit better hint of, of what Luke is driving at here. We see here that in Matthew, 7, Matthew 17, 2, he says that his face shone like the sun. The, the idea that is put out there for us is that, th- that this earthly frame of Jesus, which would have been ordinary, is now visibly showing the brightness of his glory as God the Son. As I've been driving home you and I have had an inside track on this journey with Luke. We, we know what's going on. We know who Jesus is. But once again, Luke is driving it home even further. He wants us to know who Jesus is. He is not merely an ordinary human. Even, even though he has fully taken on our flesh in his humanity, he is fully human. He is also fully divine. And if us and the disciples didn't get the hint about the identity of Jesus up to this point, in case you haven't been catching what Luke has been telling you, now you know for sure. And notice something interesting here. The the presence of Moses in the story might cause you to think back to a well-known story of the Old Testament as you you think about what Jesus might have looked like here. It's a well-known story. Remember when Moses wanted to see the glory of God? And God said that he couldn't bear to see it. And so what did God do? He hid him in the cleft of the rock, and God passed by, and Moses was able to see basically the behind part of God's glory. And what happened to Moses? What what happened when he barely even got a glimpse of the glory of God? The state of the face of Moses after that event was one of glowing. His face glowed because he had been in the presence of God And he had to cover his face because it was so bright that it bothered the people. Moses had to wear a veil because he was reflecting the glory of God he had been in the presence of. Well, here we easily have this same imagery. But instead of being like Moses, Jesus isn't reflecting glory. He's radiating himself. It is coming out of him. Once again, we get the idea of the divinity of Jesus in the text here. This glory isn't something that Jesus is reflecting. It's something that is inherent in who he is. Jesus is, for lack of a better way of describing it, he's not the moon reflecting the sun. He is the source of light itself. Okay? That's the idea we get in the text. It comes from him. He has glory in and of himself And this is the idea of the transfiguration. That's what we're meant to understand here. It's giving us another deep insight into this identity that Jesus has. He is the divine one. He is filled with glory. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. Now, I've already mentioned the presence of Moses at this event, but it's important that we take a look at both the men who are there and, and what they represent. Moses and Elijah are there as a visible representation and a visual witness of the two major eras of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. You've heard Jesus refer to Scripture that, the law and the prophets. Well, Moses represents the law. He was the giver of the law. Elijah is the greatest prophet. He represents the era of the prophets. He del- Moses delivers the covenant of the law, and Elijah is the high point 
of the prophetic work in the Old Testament, calling people to return to the Lord their God. And all of this, all of the Old Testament, points to the coming Messiah who would fulfill the law and the words of the prophets. You get the idea here. The fulfillment of all that is happening is taking place here. We have the fulfillment of all that is promised in the Old Testament. All the way back to Genesis 3, it's come here in the fullness of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to have the insider's view here as Luke tells the story. He knows what they're talking about. The topic of conversation is the departure of Jesus. And we know they aren't talking about his departure from the mountain. They aren't talking about getting out of that region They're talking about what Jesus will soon accomplish in Jerusalem. And it isn't going to be pretty. Jesus is not going to go down this mountain where he's been radiating in his glory to a celebration. He's going to go down the mountain with his face set to the cross. As we saw last week with Jesus speaking about how he was going to suffer. This is the mission that Jesus is on. All of the miracles and all of the teaching of Jesus are leading us to this suffering that he will endure. Remember, the people want a conquering leader. They want an earthly leader. But that's not where Jesus is headed. He's headed to the cross. And as we move on to our second point today, we find that while Jesus is radiating this glory and showing his identity as the divine Messiah, the disciples are asleep. And isn't this just like the disciples? You've got to love the way the Gospels present the disciples. You had to know, before you even read, you had to know it was late at night, these guys are asleep. Jesus is praying, these guys are asleep. But this is a strange time for them to be asleep because this is the biggest moment so far. The event that you want to be able to say that you were at and you've nodded off. Don't worry. I don't ever plan and won't ever be able to radiate glory, so feel free to nod off during the sermon anytime. You're probably not going to miss anything special. I'm not going to do anything too spectacular. But the disciples fall asleep while Jesus is praying, and they wake up. Now, it takes them, the, takes them a while to figure out what's going on here. Like myself, I'm sure you've, sure you've woken up in a fog many times, and it's taken you a little bit to, to clear out the cobwebs and figure out What's happening? But you would think that Jesus radiating his glory would accelerate the waking up process just a little bit. You would think that maybe they came too quicker than than I would. Now I'm imagining that the disciples probably felt like their feet were stuck in concrete here. You just woke up. How would you approach this? What do you do here? Not only that, but this is the glory of Almighty God being radiated Do you think they felt like they could go closer to it safely? You know, we don't know much of of this was, you know, them not moving or not doing anything was the, the fact that the disciples were sort of in a fog, they were freshly awakened. But as the men were gonna leave, as Elijah and Moses were gonna leave, Peter speaks up and he makes an interesting statement here, doesn't he? It's almost it almost feels like Peter had absolutely no idea what to say, and so he just spit out the first thing that he thought of. Not only do we get this idea from what Luke tells us, but we're also given some commentary here on Peter's statement. He suggests that they build shelters for Moses and Elijah. Peter wanted to stay in the moment. He wanted to stay on the mount. 
He wanted this to continue. And so he blurts out a suggestion. He wants to keep the glory of Jesus shining. So let's have Moses and Elijah stay. Now there are some issues here with this, right? The glory that Jesus has isn't dependent upon Moses and Elijah. He wasn't the source, or they weren't the source, of the glory of Jesus. They were great and godly men, but they were just men. Peter's statement implies that he thinks that they are on the same level with Jesus, but but Jesus is God. Moses and Elijah are not at his level. They are not the peers of Jesus. Moses and Elijah weren't on the mount to give Jesus anything or to consult him with tips for his journey to the cross. Jesus is the one who's worthy of praise, not Moses and Elijah. And secondly, while we can understand Peter's desire to stay here and keep this mountaintop experience going, what's the problem with that? Well, you can see it pretty easily if you you stop and think about what we know about the mission of Jesus. Where is Jesus headed? He's on a path to the cross. And Luke has made it abundantly clear that the Messiah must suffer. Building a shelter and making this glory last isn't the plan of God. The plan of God is suffering. Now that will lead to the everlasting glory. Glory will come from that suffering that Jesus is going to endure. But the path to that glory is bringing salvation to the people of God through the cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension. So Peter was jumping the most difficult steps. He wanted the the end result right away. He wanted the playset pictured on the Lego box without putting it together. Okay? He wanted the end result without doing the work. And the timing of this is interesting because it hasn't even been 10 days since Jesus drove this point home to them about suffering. And once again, Peter doesn't get it. He's expecting glory without the cross. He's expecting glory without the cross. Think back. Think back to earlier in Luke. Think back to the beginning of Matthew when we read about the temptation of Jesus. Wasn't that what Satan was offering Jesus? Glory without the cross? Earthly glory? Glory without bearing the wrath of God to redeem a people for himself? And so, in the midst of Peter's question, we get a definitive statement on what the disciples should do. And once again, if you think back to some Old Testament stories, you're going to feel very familiar with this part of the text that we're seeing here. A cloud comes and overshadows them. Remember back to the Old Testament. Remember when the cloud led the people in the Exodus? And when the presence of God went into the tabernacle? The idea here is more than just setting an ominous mood. A cloud came over them and it was spooky and scary. That's how we read it, but that's not what Luke wants his readers to understand. He wants them to understand that this is God who is coming, that this cloud is coming, and just as God came to the people of Israel in a cloud, he has come here in this way. Just as he went into the uh, tabernacle and into the temple in this cloud, the presence of God is here. The idea is that the presence of God has come around them and over them, and you can You can understand then why it says they're afraid. This is more than fog settling in or having some smoke pass through. The disciples know what's going on. 
The idea of being in the presence of God is terrifying when you were immortal. If their knees wouldn't have been knocking, it would mean that they have no idea of the holiness and the majesty of God. They should be afraid. They are in the presence of the Almighty. As we read this, we're to understand what's going on. And so we get that this voice coming from the cloud is not someone hiding behind the tree speaking in a booming voice, right? This isn't something like that. This isn't, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The idea that we get here is that this is God speaking. And when, when he speaks, it's concise. It's to the point. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. As we've been tracking through the Gospel of Luke, what have I been driving home? That Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one. He has authority. And we see this in the story of the announcement of his birth. We see it in the way the news of his birth was given to the shepherds. It's made apparent to us when he teaches in the temple and impresses the religious leaders when he's 12. We find this authority in his healing miracles and the miraculous catch of fish in raising people from the dead and his ability to calm the storm simply by speaking at every turn. We see that Jesus is divine and that he is the chosen one of God. And now we find that God himself speaks and confirms the message. If you won't understand that Jesus is the chosen one, the Son of God, from what Luke has been showing us, maybe you'll accept it when God speaks this truth. And the command given here is more than just a statement to get Peter from suggesting building shelters on the mountains. It's a statement that confirms the authority of Jesus. Listen to him. This means that you not only do what he says, but you also believe what he tells you. And the message that Jesus has delivered regarding his suffering is true. And the time is coming where they will not only witness the suffering of their Lord and their friend, but they have also been told that they will suffer themselves. But if this message is from God, which it is, then it is time to listen to the words of Jesus. And following him is of primary importance. And as the passage closes up, we see the disciples remain quiet about what they saw. You know, while, while I would think the reaction would be to go to the other disciples who weren't there and say, you're not going to believe what we saw, guys. I also understand their silence. I get it. How do you explain this? Do, do they wonder if anyone would believe them? The identity of Jesus has not only been verified in, in Peter's statement of him being the Messiah, about him being the Christ, but it's now been delivered to them with absolute divine authority in the voice of God from a cloud. They know, and Jesus has told them not to tell anyone his identity, and so they keep silent about what has happened on the mount. But eventually they do tell the story, because you and I know it today. They reveal it when the full story of Jesus and who he is is to be told. And so we come to the end of another passage in Luke that shows us so much about who Jesus is. It gives us his identity. And the reason we gather together to hear the word of God is to be built up in faith. And so we desire to apply the scriptures to our life that we might live lives that bring glory to our magnificent and our glorious Savior. 
this one that we saw here today. And from this passage, we are once again reminded of the divine authority of Jesus. And that authority is spelled out for us by the voice of God God himself. We are to listen to Jesus. And this goes without saying. If Jesus is who Scripture says that he is, then we do well to believe and to listen. Does it mean that we just hear about God and ascend to what we hear and believe it intellectually? Or does it mean that it becomes an important part of who we are? Does it shape how we live our lives? Does it shape how we view the world around us? Anyone can hear the words of Jesus, those words that say, take up your cross and follow him. It's easy to hear those words. It's an entirely different thing to say, I will bear that cross. I will take up my cross, Jesus. I will follow you. But this happens when we we take a look at who Jesus is and we say, I see who you are, Jesus. And I see who I am. And I realize that you're my only hope. You're, You're all I've got. You are the Son of God. You're the chosen one. And I'm a sinner. Your glory is beyond measure. And I'm a traitor. I, I'm corrupt. I'm, I'm dead in my sin. I hear that you are holy. And so you offer me the, the gift of life. And so I fall at your feet. And I receive the gift of repentance and the gift of forgiveness. The gift that you offer me because Jesus, you did not seek the earthly glory. But instead, you bore the suffering and the pain of the cross, and you took on the wrath of God for my sin. I hear that, and I believe it. I'm listening to you. We know this message. We we hear this message from Scripture, and we confess these truths on a regular basis. But it's so easy for us to seek the earthly glory, to seek the easy path, And so this is why we need to hear the word of the Lord regularly. The world world comes to us with these other voices, the worldly voices that make promises that they can't keep. And we know that the world can't keep them, but they are appealing to our flesh. When we hear the word, though, we are reminded of the way things truly are. We remember who Jesus is and that he is the one with authority in our lives and the Spirit works repentance in us And we respond desiring to live from then on for him. And so our points of application are not only to listen to Jesus, but to respond to Jesus. The disciples left from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were silent about what they saw. But on the other side of the crucifixion, on the other side of the resurrection, and on the other side of the ascension, they couldn't keep their mouth shut They were telling everybody about who Jesus was and what he had done. And you know what? We live on the other side of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. This is is where we live. We're blessed to live with a knowledge not only of the glory that was manifested in the light from the face of Jesus, but we also know the glory that came through the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, while we can't brag that we were there on the mountain with Jesus— we can't show anyone our ticket. We've also, we do instead have a story. We've been brought from death to life. We've been transformed 
by the work of Jesus and by the work of the Holy Spirit creating faith in our hearts. Our deliverance from sin, death, and hell, and the devil is a watershed moment that we celebrate because we have witnessed it in our lives. We were there when we were brought from death to life. And as we are reminded of that glorious salvation that we have in Jesus, may we have boldness to do what the disciples did. They didn't do it in this passage, but they did it as they went out after the ascension. They spoke boldly of who Jesus is, and they told of the authority that he had not only in their lives, but that he had in all of creation. So may our lives bear witness to Jesus. May we listen to what he says. May we do what he says. But may we also speak of this Jesus who has saved us. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.